This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Matthew 20, 17 through 28, which examines Jesus's third prediction of his death and an interaction with James and John's mother. Together, we will be discussing our call to maintain a servant's heart. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast, back with you this week to continue our conversation through Matthew. Uh, As a quick reminder, last week we worked through Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, where we looked at Jesus's parable on the workers in the vineyard, which ultimately led us into a conversation on God's call to empty ourselves and working into uh, keeping our eyes focused on him. This week, we move on uh, to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. So just continuing in chapter 20, and we're going to look at Jesus's third prediction of his death and an interaction with James and John's mother. Today, I think we have Natasha reading for us. So Natasha, would you be willing to read Matthew 20, 17 through 28? Yes. Matthew 20, 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. Thank you for that, Natasha. Uh, so let's go ahead and just jump in. What are you guys seeing? What What are you hearing through this passage? Um. So with the first part, it you know, this is the third time that Jesus is talking to them about his death. Um, And what I thought was interesting about this part is he took them aside and he gives them more detail than I think he's given in the other two accounts that he's given. He talks about being mocked and flogged and crucified. Um, And that's just information that I don't think has been shared during the other times. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that this is kind of an important characteristic of the gospel of Matthew, because Matthew's whole intent is to kind of legitimize the claims of the Jewish Christians who say Jesus is the Messiah. So 
in this way, the writer of Matthew is kind of affirming, hey, you're okay in believing that Jesus is the Messiah because look, Jesus himself was prophesying and redefining the Messiah all along. This isn't something that then came after his death that the disciples made up. This is something that Jesus had been legitimizing and prophesying about. He knew this was coming and he was trying to redefine what the Messiah would be, that the Messiah would be this servant king, which the the writer of Matthew really just tucks this in here really well in the middle of this conversation of what it means to kind of lower yourself mm-hmm. um, because we've been talking about this now for a couple weeks and and you know so we'll continue to talk about this idea of you know bringing ourselves lower and so I think it just fits perfectly in this in this piece in this conversation here where we're at. There's a uh, two pieces that I think really stick out to me in this first part of Jesus predicting his death for the third time. And one of them is, um, I think in discussing and reading through the gospels, I, and maybe most kind of have a bad taste in my mouth and our mouth, uh, for the religious officials. Like it's, it's, it always seems like it's Jesus pitted against the Jews, right? And, and that's like the tension that exists through this. And yet, in this third prediction of his death, he brings out that there is both Jew and Gentile involvement in the death of Christ. And so instead of it just being like this this one-track mind where it's like, man, the Jews are guilty of the death of Christ. No, no, no. All are guilty of the death of Christ. He's doing something so that they don't feel so alienated. It's right. like Right. So that that was the one thing that I noticed and then the other thing that I noticed was the we are going statement that he makes at the beginning of verse 18. It's almost as if when Jesus has pulled them aside up to this point he's been talking about how I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And now he makes a statement we are going to initiate this conversation on his death and su- or his suffering and subsequent death. And it's like there is this invitation or, uh, or identification that this journey that I am on is a journey that we are on. And so there is this communal understanding, communal nature of the suffering and death that Jesus is going to endure and that the disciples will ultimately participate in as well. Well, and last week we talked about this emptying out, and and Jesus is laying before them what what that looks like, what that's going to look like for him to be emptied out, um, and uh, as Brittany said, gives a, a a more graphic description of what that emptying out looks like for him, but not just for him that you know um, that some of them will face too, mm-hmm. or have to be willing to face. Yeah. And so even though he puts all of these, you know, specific details into what it looks like for, for the Messiah to go to the cross, um, he's, he's, he's laid it out for him. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing really that seems hidden here. And yet we still enter now into this, this mother's request and she presents an earthly request that's clearly for an earthly kingdom. So I guess we can say that Peter maybe isn't alone and that maybe <laughs> Peter is just the spokesperson for the disciples who are still 
you know, still trying to come to terms with what it looks like to be, be the Messiah, to understand this upside down kingdom. And to participate in the upside down kingdom and what that looks like. Well, I think that has a lot to do, like we can see that even now, you know, we know what it costs to follow Christ, but yet we're still, we still struggle. We still struggle with laying down the things that we desire for the things of the kingdom. And I mean, this is still, you know, the disciples are still desiring this king and this kingdom that is earthly. And I mean, even their parents are wanting that as well for them. It's like they're caught in the tension that we experience, Absolutely. the very tension we experience today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, the, the rich young ruler has come forward, like in this, what, what comes out of, of their mother. Like they're still thinking of like, what am I going to get out of living in this kingdom? Mm-hmm. And they're wanting to be elevated to a place of honor, to a place of prestige, to... They're wanting something out of this relationship. And the whole time, like Jesus is calling them to not worry about the status, um, worry about the mission. And so, I don't know, that's that's kind of something that sticks out to me. As a mom, and I don't know that, you know, I know this is more just talking about the disciples, but as a mom, I can I can see, I can see, you know, if there's a chance that there's a kingdom that my children can be at the right and left hand of God. If I just ask, you know, cause what's the harm in asking? It's not going to hurt anything. But, but I think about me as a mom. Now I want so much for my kids, but those desires that I have very well might not be what God has for my kids. So I have to be willing to, you know, pray that God would just guide them to his will and not necessarily mine or theirs. And well, and I think as you were saying that, Brittany, it made me think about, you know, in this society, what the mother would have gained. Like we like to think as parents, we like to think, oh yes, I'm being totally selfless, wanting (laughs) all these great things for my kids. But there's parts of it that, you know, I think as a parent, even in today's society, we can feel proud because Mm -hmm. our child has excelled at something or done really well at something or has, you know, we can you know, there's just lots of, lots of different scenarios. And so I can't help but feel like, you know, this mom was probably thinking, well, if my boys sit at the right and left hand of the King, Mm -hmm. this, like this new David, like I, I'm going to like, this is going to, this is going to change the trajectory of our whole family. That honor will be bestowed upon her as well. Right. You know, what's crazy to me in, in this conversation is you brought up the rich young ruler and at the end of that parable, you know, the disciples say, well, we've done all that, so what do we get? And he says, you will sit at 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. He, Jesus has already identified yeah. that they will have an elevated position. And yet, for some reason, sitting on one of 12 thrones is not quite enough. Like, my throne actually needs to be next to yours, Jesus, for it to matter more. Yeah. <laughs> and so it just this continual grasping for power that exists. And I recognize it's the, the mom who asked the question, right? Uh, but if you are looking in, um, let's see, uh, verse 22, Jesus's response is, you don't know what you are asking. Uh, yeah, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. 
can you drink the cup I am going to drink? So responds to the mother and then asks a question of what I would assume is James and John because it's their mom or maybe the rest of the disciples as well. But either way, it's the mom asks the question, but then Jesus answers the disciples. And so perhaps it's not just maybe the mom did it on her own volition and it had no influence from anybody, but perhaps there was also some conversation that was happening amongst the disciples about sitting at his right and left. And so still this desire for more like, okay, sweet. We have 12 seats, but what wouldn't it be neat if my seat was the seat that was Mm -hmm. next to Jesus? That's the seat that I actually want. It doesn't matter that I have a seat. If it's six seats away from Jesus, I need the one next to him. And so like maybe the mom hearing this is like, all right, let me settle this. (laughs) Yeah. I I tend to think that, that, that it wasn't like, I I imagine that, yes, it's probably addressing James and John, but I imagine that, that they were all thinking it because, you know, Jesus knows how to read the room. So I imagine it was a thought that at least was on the minds of the disciples. And which is really ironic because he keeps trying to hammer home like, like this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be. Like this is your position within the kingdom of heaven. But wait, there I want more. And instead, instead of wanting more of Jesus, they want what more of what Jesus can give them. And the crazy thing is, is this competition that exists leads to opposition amongst them. These 12 men who have journeyed with Jesus that have learned, have seen the miracles that he is able to perform, that know that he is the Messiah, and yet they give in to this, these competitive ways of society and trying to further themselves and self-promote and, and climb this ladder of influence, and in so doing, that breeds opposition within the ranks of these 12 men. And as I think about that, I mean, we are a world away from this biblical times. And yet our society is still very, very similar. We work to climb the ladder, to garner more influence, to, and we talked about this last week, Mm -hmm. you know, and this conversation is continuing on. Um, and I don't think until this week I ever thought about the fact that participating in that structure breeds opposition. And that's antithetical to the gospel. Well, and we know that Jesus doesn't want that. I mean, he prays against that. Right. And you know, he, he says, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. Right. And not just them, but all of those. I mean, we're, we are prayed for mm-hmm. that we would be one. Mm-hmm. And so this mom asked this question. And, and Jesus' response is, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And so I think it would probably be a good idea to have a conversation on what, what this means. What is this cup that he is referring to? They, they answer in the affirmative, we can. And he doesn't disagree with them. He says, you will. Um, and so what, what do we know about this cup of suffering? Just his language, the use of the word cup, kind of takes me to the Garden of Gethsemane, which we're going to end up here 
at in a few chapters. And um, he he's praying and begging the father to take this cup from him. And so what I hear is like this cup of the cross, this cup, like that's what, what Jesus is begging be taken from him. Isn't there some other way? Isn't there, can't we just, can't we save the world by doing from sin and suffering by doing something different? Isn't there, there another option? And, you know, we, we know, you know, that Jesus goes to the cross and he's obedient to that. But this, so then that leaves me with this, well, this cup is then like this cross or the suffering that Jesus is going to endure. And we know that uh, James and John are apostles. And we know that James is going to be, I believe he's the first of the martyred apostles. But John, we know that John is, is not going to suffer in the same sort of way, like this martyrs type death. And he's going to go on. And I, he's the only of the apostles who we believe died of natural causes. And, and so this suffer, this, this cup has to refer to more than just this, this martyrs death. Mm. It has to uh, refer to the suffering in general, which I think probably gives a whole new meaning and context to our participation in drinking the cup at the communion table. So when we choose to drink of the cup, we're choosing to engage in and participate in the suffering that will come as a result of our obedience to Christ and our, our I guess, suffering for the gospel. So we know that John will go on and he's he's going to be imprisoned on the island of Patmos and we can we can guess that this is later in his life and so for an elderly man to be living and dwelling in this this cave essentially um probably wasn't ideal circumstances it was probably quite difficult uh, there's not much evidence we have of John giving a lot of complaint but we know that while he was here we get the book of revelation. And so we know that even in the midst of all of his suffering, God was with him and he continued to speak to him and use him in mission, even though he was, was isolated and affect, you know, affect us for still to this day. You know, as you were saying what you were about the cup of suffering and this, this participation conversation when we're you know, receiving or participating in communion, um, previously, Natasha, we have talked about like, what does that mean actually for us though, to participate in the life, death and resurrection of Christ? Um, and just in, while you were talking about it, a, a thought came to me. Um, and so maybe we can test the thought, but in the context of these parables and these conversations that we have been working through for the last couple of weeks now it would seem as though that the suffering sure could be physical, but for the most part is in the denial of self for the sake of the gospel. So it's, it's a willingness to set aside my desires and my wants and my comforts and maybe even my rights based on where I live 
for the sake of the gospel, for the furthering of the love of the and that that Jesus represents and the the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven. And so the suffering that the cup that that the disciples drank from, the cup that Jesus drank from, right? Ultimately, they had to endure different things, but it was the same cup of participation in the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven and suffering was in, involved in all of that deeply when we talk about this denial of self. When when Jesus was in the garden, he was suffering immensely because there was this battle that was happening because he didn't want to have to die. And yet he had to deny himself and say not my will though, yours be done, Father. And so perhaps this conversation of suffering, participation in the suffering, participation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is really a participation in the denial of ourselves. And when we use that to like segue into the, like the next portion of this, this passage, we're not going to really worry about where we're seated. Like that's not going to be uh, in our mind because to carry out the mission of Christ will take precedence over if I'm going to sit at his right or left hand. And so, you know, I think Jesus is trying to point back the focus to the mission and not the result. Well, and I think today in the church, this is what we see. We see this, this conflict emerging. We see the competition emerging. We talked about that a little bit last week. We see, this lack of oneness or communing. If we can get ourselves to a place where we can fix our eyes on Jesus and make him be the main thing of everything we do, if he's our motivation for everything, like you said, then all we're doing is carrying out his mission moment by moment, step by step, you know, large project by large, large project, everything is focused on and centralized on Jesus. There is no vying for position. There is no moving up this ladder of hierarchy. It just, it, it fades away into, into the background. And I think, I think this is, this is the, the prayer that Jesus had for all of us is that we be one in this way. We be unified. We may disagree on a thousand different things, but if we can be unified on our main thing, if we can be unified on our Jesus focus, then we're going to be able to do incredible things on mission for the kingdom because that is his intent. And so I, I don't know. I, I just think, I think that mission part that you said, Derek, I think that just really, really is the key. And, this. and these are the early church leaders. These will be the early church leaders. And so, like verse 24, when, when the other 10 heard about this, they were indignant. And for me, like when I heard that, I thought back to the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the ones who were there the whole time, are they're like, well, wait, this, this isn't fair. Yep. Like, yep. this isn't fair. Well, like, they, they're getting upset in, in reality, like we are. They, they probably are like, I'm upset that they asked before I did. I'm not upset about what they asked. I'm upset because they got to the question before I could. And so I, if we keep the main thing, the main thing, then the leaders aren't worried about like, 
we're not jockeying for position. We shouldn't be doing that in the church anyway. Like we have all these things and we, we talk about, you know, numbers and all like we, we, we care and concern ourselves with that so much that we, the main thing shifts to what we've made the main thing. And, and then we worry about all these things that, that the disciples were worried about. And so it's almost like Jesus like is preparing them after a way he comes out of with the parable of the workers in the vineyard. He tells them like, it's like the reminder, like it's going to happen. I'm going to die and I want you to get it. And then they go back to like this, like jockeying for position. So like they, they leave that state kind of goes into this reminder and, and they're right back to it. And he's just trying to get them to understand my kingdom is different. Don't worry about your position. Worry about the mission. You know what's ironic about the converse, the question of being able to sit at the right and the left when his kingdom comes? The two people that were at Jesus' right and left as the kingdom broke in and the veil was torn were two criminals. They were the least. They weren't the ones that were striving for for power and influence. They were the ones who were just really hoping to survive the next day. And those were the ones. Maybe unconventionally, because I don't think uh, James and John's mom had it in her mind that the throne would look like a cross. But they were the ones who were at his right and left. Not his disciples. And so in continuing this this conversation, Derek, that you were having about um, really like the, the power structures, like how things are, are set up, um, whether you're talking about in the church or in the world at large. I mean, ultimately, there is a ladder that exists. There is avenues to climb that ladder. As you move up that ladder, more influence is, is garnered, more respect is is um, given uh, usually increased responsibility, usually increased reward as you climb that ladder. And Jesus, thousands of years ago, calls that out because it was the same way that the Gentile world was structured, right? I mean, this is how Rome was built on this mentality as well. And Jesus says, you know, even though this is how the world is, not so with you. This is not how you are to exist. This is not how you are to participate. And so then the question becomes, so then what does it look like for us to hear Jesus's not so with you today? I think the first thing we have to recognize is the issue is not the structure. Jesus is not saying the structure is the problem. Mm. He's saying our our use, the way we're trying to manipulate the structure. Yeah. Our participation or interaction within the structure is the problem. Again, it comes back to this heart mm. in the structure is the problem. Um, and so I think that it's really important for us to constantly be checking our motivation. Mm -hmm. Am I, am I doing this particular task at my job hoping to get noticed by a superior so that way they might promote me to a higher level position? Or am I doing this because I love Jesus 
and he has commanded me to work at whatever I do with all my heart. So I'm going to do that because I love Jesus Mm. and I want people to see the light. And I think, I think that difference is what, you know, I think that's what Jesus is trying to call to their attention here, because we know, like you said, they're going to be placed on thrones. So the issue isn't the structure. The issue is the heart. I would agree. When I think about, you know, as a leader in a healthcare facility, I, I'm responsible for the actions of my employees, Um, whether I like it or not, I'm, I'm responsible and I can go about correction in multiple ways. I can go through and say, do this or else, you know, you have to do this. There's, you know, there's no other way you have to do this. And I'm, I'm, if I'm honest, um, the past two weeks, I've kind of had that, like, not that I haven't said that, but I've had that heart of, we just have to do things right. It doesn't, you just have to do things right. Um, but on Sunday when we read this, it made me think like, yes, ultimately I'm, they, I'm responsible for what they, what they do but I'm also responsible for their soul. I'm, I'm responsible for their salvation as far as I'm responsible for showing them Jesus with, when they don't know it. And how much easier is it going to be for me to tell them about Jesus if I am serving, if I am asking them to do something in a way that I would be willing to do it myself? You know, I... We have this thing, and I don't know how relevant this is for here, but we have this thing that we, um, it's called um, a no-pass zone. If a call light's going off, it doesn't matter who it is. They have to go in and take care and find out what's going on and try to help that patient. It doesn't matter if you are dietary. It doesn't matter if you're a leader. It doesn't matter if you're a nurse or a doctor. It's a no-pass zone. You go right in and you take care of it. If I'm not willing to do that, if I'm not willing to stop and take care of that situation, and I'm but I'm telling my employees they have to, how that, that's not going to translate very well to them. Mm -hmm. That's not going, that's to me, not a very effective leader. And I think Jesus is not only speaking to leadership in the church, but I think leadership in general, you have to serve. If you want people to follow, you have to serve in a way that people know that you care. I, I, I deeply care about my employees and I want them to do what's right. And in order for them to do what's right, I have to serve them and care for them and show them how to do what's right. I just have this, there was a song that I used to listen to when I was younger, and these words just keep coming to my mind, and it it just, that it's an honor to serve. And I don't think that we often look at serving others as an honor and a privilege. We kind of look at it almost like the workers, like we were were serving for our benefit, not for someone Mm -hmm. else's benefit. And so, like, for me, that's that's the challenge that I take away from this passage, that I look at serving as a, an honor, because when I serve, I, I'm continuing the work that Jesus did before me. And so, like, for me, that is the, that is the challenge that I, I see in this, that, that every day, in whatever way I'm serving someone that I look at as an honor, it's an extension of our worship to Jesus. If we look at service like worship, then it would probably be far different in our lives. But we look at we look at serving as not an act of worship. We look at as a a, a means to an end, and so or a sacrifice. Yeah, we're a sacrifice. Um, yeah, we don't we look at them as 
unfortunately, like culturally, I don't say like we as a general statement, but like in our culture, it's, it's easy to see serving as like a reward system. Like, what am I getting out of this serving? And, um, serving should be an act of worship because that's what Jesus did. It's like the, the, the feet washing. And I think you, didn't you say something about that last week about, about washing feet? Like, Mm-hmm. Although that was a call out to pastors, but I mean, well, I may have said pastors, but I yeah. think it really could just be called out to everybody. Right. I don't see a lot of people walking around washing no, feet no. unless they're being paid to wash feet. Right. And and that's that's the thing. Like, uh, uh, you know, serving is an act of worship. If Jesus, like the King of Kings, God in flesh, God incarnate was willing to serve like that's the least I can do and I think it's such an important thing too to bring this I mean we're there's a lot of us here who are pastors and so um, to bring this into the secular workplace as well because I think so many of us have a tendency in the secular workplace to divorce our call to serve from whatever it is that our secular employment requires of us. Mm -hmm. Like we, we have this partition in our minds where we think, well, in this, like, this is just the way we do this. You know, in the business world, I need to make sure we hit our profits. I need to make sure, like, forget the fact that doing this thing would be maybe a Jesus, like we can't afford to think that way. The shareholders won't, won't allow it, you know? And I think we try to justify it because that's not the way our secular world expects us to operate. And so we, we just, we've partitioned it. Some, some of us, I mean, completely out of ignorance, not even realizing that that's what we're actually doing, but Jesus looks at us and he says, not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must serve. And so I don't know. I I think that it's good that we, you know, these conversations, I feel like they kind of come back full circle, but maybe, you know, instead of just like focusing on like the church and the church conversation, it's important. Um, Brittany, I really appreciate your example too, because it made me think about it from a top down perspective, whereas I had been thinking about it from like a bottom up perspective, probably because that's been my position always, you know, like, (laughs) so. And so through this passage uh, this week and building from the passages in the weeks past. We come to this place again. I'm not going to say it's the first time, but we come to this place again where Jesus has called his disciples then and his disciples now to serve. Wherever we might find ourselves, whatever position we might be in, whether in the workplace, whether in familial relationships, whether in um, romantic relationships, like whatever it is, Jesus has called us to a position of service. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.